Warning. This episode contains vivid descriptions of people being eaten by monsters. Listener discretion is advised. This is Garth from the Lost Cabin somewhere in rural Massachusetts. Some lost places are better off that way. A bus ride to Innsmouth, Mass. is frequently a one-way trip. This journey often ends in madness or a meal for a sugath. But if you insist, keep listening. Sit back, close your eyes, and imagine your world subtly transformed. A world where your town is populated by monsters who peer out at you through dark curtains as you walk down the street. A world where the unspeakable is occurring in an apartment next door, where scientific discoveries unwittingly unleash alien creatures upon humanity where the oceans secretly harbor ancient horrors waiting to emerge from the depths, and the stars themselves in the sky house unimaginable creatures that may see humans as food, something to be manipulated, or something completely irrelevant that can be swept away at any moment. This was the world of H.P. Lovecraft, and in particular, of Lovecraft's Massachusetts. The secrets of this terrifying world could be unlocked with specific devices or be found through hidden gateways explained in a series of his stories. Lovecraft explored the darkest places, including the darkest fears of his own mind, to envision a Massachusetts full of evil decay was he talking about things in his imagination? Or was he talking about real places that he had been to? Lost Massachusetts is going to do its best to find out. So who was Lovecraft? Howard Phillips Lovecraft was born in 1890, and he's considered by many to be the progenitor of modern horror, weird fiction, and science fiction. He's written a number of stories that were adapted into other stories, were turned into feature films, television shows, radio shows. And he continues to be re-examined and readapted. There's quite a bit of controversy about him as a person, and there's quite a bit of discussion about the true meaning of some of his stories. There are two particular, you would say, contributions to the popular culture that he's responsible for. One of them is an enormous monster that lives in the ocean uh, called Cthulhu. 
And you've probably heard this name pop up all over the place, and you've probably seen representations of this monster uh, in various scenes and um, even in humorous ways. But supposedly this enormous creature is just waiting to be awakened from his sleep, and uh, he's going to come to the surface eventually and, and eat us all and destroy the planet. In addition to that, uh, as if that wasn't enough, he is also the creator of the idea of this uh, horrible, powerful black book called the Necronomicon. And uh, even discussing, looking at, holding a copy of this book will supposedly uh, open up gateways and infect you with dark ideas. But this is also a concept which has been carried over into many stories and you've probably seen it pop up in, in many movies. And his contributions to horror and science fiction in general are also many small pieces, many small pieces that uh, filmmakers will even acknowledge came from him stories that have been recycled, motifs and uh, parts of characters that are based on things that Lovecraft first wrote about. And of course, in this episode, we're not so much going to be focused on him as a person or his stories overall. We're talking about the locations that he refers to in Massachusetts, and there are many and each one of these sort of deserves its own episode for exploration. And it's not just that he used Massachusetts as a location for some of his stories. The curious part is that he puts in extremely descriptive uh, locations and directions for these supposedly fictitious places that he's talking about. And we're going to draw from those stories and we're going to try and actually go to the locations that he's talking about. Lovecraft is set apart from other monster creators in the popular culture by an interesting fact. He was writing in the 1920s and 30s, and if you look at what was in the popular culture at that time, as far as horror went, we have, of course, Dracula, the Wolfman, the Mummy, Frankenstein, Jekyll and Hyde, and the thread that connects all of these characters together is the fact that they were all once human is that beneath their monster exterior is somebody who was just like us at one point or another. A vampire becomes a vampire by being bit by one. The same fate is true of a werewolf. A mummy is an ancient human who has been reanimated. Frankenstein was made of pieces of other humans and brought back to life. And then, of course, Jekyll and Hyde 
is a human who drinks a potion who turns him into a horrible monster. By contrast, Lovecraft's monsters were never human to begin with. Lovecraft's monsters come from other worlds, other dimensions, and slip through the fabric of time. One particular monster that is in this story and appears in other stories is called a Shoggoth or a Shoggoth. And this is a description from a different story at the Mountains of Madness. A terrible, indescribable thing vaster than any subway train. A shapeless congress of protoplasmic bubbles, faintly self-luminous, with myriads of temporary eyes forming and unforming as pustules of greenish light all over the tunnel-filling front that bore down upon us, crushing the frantic penguins and slithering over the glistening floor that it and its kind had swept so evilly free of litter. So what you have is this giant blob with floating eyes and tentacles just kind of going through and removing or consuming whatever gets in its way. And uh, the sort of the history of this creature and the creatures like it is that they were created by an even stranger and more distant race of alien beings. And they created the Shuggaths as servants and the Shuggaths rebelled and uh, started to supposedly live their own destiny. But part of their destiny involves in destroying our destiny. And uh, we will come face to face with the Shuggath in Innsmouth. Many of the locations that Lovecraft uses are in Massachusetts. And the places are either real places you can see where they are locations with fictitious names yet have extremely specific directions and descriptions. One of his most famous and most adapted stories is called Shadow Over Innsmouth. It's truly a story crafted in a way that can scare you while you're reading it. And in addition to being scared the first time I read this story, it also occurred to me while I was reading it that I knew exactly where this supposed fictitious town was located. So I'm going to give you a quick overview of the story of Shadow over Innsmouth. Basically the main character travels to a creepy town on the North Shore of Massachusetts. And he's heard about this place and he's curious because apparently uh, one of his relatives originated from this town. Um, people don't really go to this place. They try and stay away from it, but he is drawn to it. And getting there on an old rickety bus where he's the only passenger sort of uh, takes the reader away into somewhat of a dark fantasy land. And he begins to experience odd things 
as he enters the town and he interacts with some of the people there. And not to give too much away, but the inhabitants of the town have made communion with certain sea creatures and they are sort of half human, half sea creature. And they are either planning to um, eat uh, the narrator or make him part of their community. And depending on your perspective, either one of those are equally or more horrifying. And uh, of course, many people wonder what was going through Lovecraft's head when he wrote this. Uh, But we're just going to take this as far as the descriptions go at face value. And we are just going to look at this and review his directions to the town as if this is a real place to be visited. So uh, sit back and listen to a reading from the story itself. I'm not going to read the whole story. It's actually a five chapter book and uh, it's over 70 pages in total. What I am going to read is I'm going to read about the physical description of the town, which I think is you know, kind of to the point of what we're talking about. The physical description of Innsmouth is mostly from chapter two, and it is generally right after the main character arrives in town and starts uh, walking around and looking at things. It was a town of wide extent and dense construction, yet one with a portentous dearth of visible life. From the tangle of chimney posts, scarcely a wisp of smoke came, and the three tall steeples loomed stark and unpainted against the seaward horizon. One of them was crumbling down at the top. And in that, Another, there were only black gaping holes where clock dials should have been. The vast huddle of sagging gambrel roofs and peaked gables conveyed with offensive clearness the idea of wormy decay, and as we approached along the now descending road, I could see that many roofs had wholly caved in. There were some large square Georgian houses two with hipped roofs, coppolas, and railed widow's walks. These were mostly well back from the water, and one or two seemed to be in moderately sound condition. Stretching inland from along them, I saw the rusted, grass-grown line of the abandoned railway, with leaning telegraph poles now devoid of wires, and the half-obscured lines of the old carriage roads to Rowley and Ipswich. The decay was worse close to the waterfront, though in its very midst I could spy the white belfry of a fairly well-preserved brick structure which looked like a small factory. The harbor, long clogged with sand, was enclosed by an ancient stone breakwater on which I could begin to discern the minute forms of a few seated fishermen, and at whose end were what looked like the foundations of a bygone lighthouse. A sandy tongue had formed inside this barrier, and upon it 
I saw a few decrepit cabins, more dories, and scattered lobster pots. The only deep water seemed to be where the river poured out past the belfried structure and turned southward to join the ocean at the breakwater's end. Here and there the ruins of wharves jutted out from the shore to end in the interminate rottenness. Those farthest south seemed the most decayed, and far out at sea, despite a high tide, I glimpsed a long black line scarcely rising above the water, yet carrying a suggestion of an odd, latent malignancy. This, I knew, must be Devil Reef. As I looked, a subtle, curious sense of beckoning seemed spreaded to the grim repulsion, and oddly enough, I found this overtone more disturbing than the primary impression. We met no one on the road, but presently began to pass deserted farms in varying stages of ruin. Then I noticed a few inhabited houses with rags stuffed in the broken windows, and shells and dead fish lying about the littered yards. Once or twice I saw listless-looking people working in barren gardens or digging clams on the fishy-smelling beach below, and groups of dirty, simian-visaged children playing around the weed-grown doorsteps. As the bus reached a lower level, I began to catch the steady note of a waterfall through the unnatural stillness. The leaning, unpainted houses grew thicker, lined both sides of the road, and displayed more urban tendencies than did those we were leaving behind. The panorama ahead had contracted to a street scene, and in spots I could see where a cobblestone pavement and stretches of brick sidewalk had formerly existed. All the houses were apparently deserted, and there were occasional gaps in the tumble-down chimneys, and cellar walls told of buildings that had collapsed. Pervading everything was the most nauseous, fishy odor imaginable. Soon cross streets and junctions began to appear, those on the left leading to shoreward realms of unpaved squalor and decay, while those on the right shooed vistas of departed grandeur. So far I had seen no people in the town, but there now came signs of a sparse habitation, curtained windows here and there, and an occasional battered motor car on the curb. Pavement and sidewalks were increasingly well-defined, and though most of the houses were quite old wood and brick structures of the early 19th century, they were obviously kept fit for habitation. As an amateur antiquarian, I almost lost my olfactory disgust and my feeling of menace and repulsion amidst this rich, unaltered survival of the past. But I was not to reach my destination without one very strong impression of poignantly disagreeable equality. The bus had come to a sort of open concourse or radial point with churches on two sides of the bedraggled remains of a circular green in the center, and I was looking at a large pillared hall on the right-hand junction ahead, the structure's once white paint now gray and peeling and the black and gold sign on the pediment was so faded that I could only with difficulty make out the words Esoteric Order of Dagon. This, then, was the former Masonic Hall, now given over to a degraded cult. 
As I strained to decipher this inscription, my notice was distracted by the raucous tones of a cracked bell across the street, and I quickly turned to look out the window of my side of the coach. The sound came from a squat stone church of manifestly later date than most of the houses, built in a clumsy Gothic fashion and having a disproportionately high basement with shuttered windows. Though the hands of its clock were missing on the side I glimpsed, I knew that those hoarse strokes were tolling the hour of eleven. The sound of waterfalls became more and more distinct, and I presently saw a fairly deep river gorge ahead, spanned by a wide, iron-railed highway bridge, beyond which a large square opened out. As we clanked over the bridge, I looked out on both sides and observed some factory buildings on the edge of the grassy bluff or part way down. The water far below was very abundant, and I could see two vigorous sets of falls upstream on my right and at least one downstream on my left. From this point, the noise was quite deafening. Then we rolled into the large semicircular square across the river and drew up on the right-hand side in front of a tall cupola-crowned building with remains of yellow paint with a half-effaced sign proclaiming it to be the Gilman House. One side of the cobblestoned open space was the straight line of the river. On the other was a semicircle of slant-roofed brick buildings of about the 1800 period, from which several streets radiated away to the southeast, south, and southwest. Lamps were depressingly few and small, all low-powered incandescents, and I was glad that my plans called for departure before dark, even though I knew the moon would be bright. The buildings were all in fair condition and included perhaps a dozen shops in current operation of which one was a grocery of the first national chain, others a dismal restaurant, a drugstore, and a wholesale fish dealer's office, and still another at the eastward extremity of the square near the river an office of the town's only industry, the Marsh Refining Company. There were perhaps ten people visible, and four or five automobiles and motor trucks stood scattered about, I did not need to be told that this was the civic center of Innsmouth. Eastward, I could catch blue glimpses of the harbor, against which rose the decaying remains of three once beautiful Georgian steeples. And toward the shore on the opposite bank of the river, I saw the white belfry surmounting what I took to be the marsh refinery. So we learned a number of things from that description. One is that it was mostly made of buildings from the 19th century that are now crumbling. It's of course on the ocean with a view of Plum Island. The story itself was published in 1931 and from the elements in the story we're told that it takes place in 1927. The Innsmouth uh, carriage roads link to Rowley and Ipswich, Massachusetts, which are both real places. 
Some people have looked at the details of this story and surmised that Lovecraft was referring to Gloucester as Innsmouth, but this can't be the location of Innsmouth since one would have to go through Ipswich to get to Rowley from Gloucester, and the story clearly shows a road directly from Rowley to Innsmouth. Generally, we know it is uh, south of Newport, and it's west of Ipswich and Rowley, and it's southeast of Plum Island. Later in the story, we find out specifically that Rowley is northwest of Innsmouth. So this frames the general area where Innsmouth should be. And uh, one more detail from the story actually pinpoints the location. Just before the main character gets to Innsmouth, he passes an enormous ancient house on a high hill. And there's only one place in the area that meets that description. And it's the Crane Estate Castle, which had just been opened to the public in 1928. The last bit of detail before I get in the car is the specific directions in the story. He starts on State Street in Newburyport on a bus. The bus turns left on High Street, which travels south out of town. This is now Route 1A, but that would have not existed when he wrote the story. He crosses the Parker River, which it still does, and then he passes Plum Island on the left and turns away from Rowley and Ipswich towards a sandy shore. I know where this actually goes from here, so hang out after the commercial and we will actually take a drive to Innsmouth. So I'm on a drive, and this is one of those journeys that uh, could turn out to be, this is the last known recording of the missing person. Well, let's hope not. Because I'm headed for a destination that is really, really off the map. So I'm in downtown, historic, picturesque Newburyport, and it's covered with the kind of red brick buildings that are described in the story. And I'm going to follow the route that the character in our story follows. He gets on a bus on State Street. The bus turns left on High Street. He passes the uh, Lower Green and the Parker River, and he goes along a monotonous stretch of open shore country. He passes Plum Island, and then he veers off the main highway to Rowley and Ipswich. And the bus continues along that road for a while. We're on the outskirts of town, continuing on State Street, passing the types of buildings that are referenced by the narrator, the type of setting that is described. Now I'm driving across something that definitely wasn't here in the author's time. It's a rotary, but it is taking me in the general direction of Rowley, Massachusetts. In the story, he calls it monotonous, but I actually think this is a beautiful country. 
As indicated in the story, I've just driven over the Parker River. I'm on the other side of the bridge. I've just entered Rowley, Massachusetts. As the narrator indicates, this is the bus route. I'm headed on to the uh, less traveled, not so much highway road towards Ipswich, as indicated. So we're veering off, uh, which is technically East 133, and we are just crossing into Ipswich. So we're just following this road, imagining we're on this long bus ride, and I'm passing the clam box. And at this point, he's using fewer and fewer names that people would recognize for landmarks. He does make general reference to being on Cape Ann, but he's also using the names of rivers and towns that are not known. But just sort of based on the flow, I'm crossing over the river that he's supposedly referring to. Now, generally, I'm supposed to continue on to the ocean, so I'm turning down Argia Road in Epswich. And before we completely drive into the netherworld here, uh, the last sort of landmark reference that makes any sense is, he says, on the far misty horizon, I could make out the dizzy profile of the head, topped by the queer ancient house of which so many legends are told. But for the moment, all of my attention was captured by the nearer panorama just below me. The only place that even vaguely meets that description around here is the Crane Estate, which we will discuss in more detail. As we pass this land, last landmark he mentions, where do we find ourselves in terms of entering Innsmouth? We find ourselves at the end of the road at a place called Crane Beach. Now, Cranes is a really cool, very popular uh, beach that you either have to be a member of or pay to get on, pay a fee to get onto the beach. And I wonder why he picked this as the location. We'll have to dig into it. Summer's over. The beach uh, goers, the sunbathers are all gone. There are people out here walking, walking their dogs. It's still nice weather. And the area beyond the beach is kind of a hard scrabble brush, lots of uh, dunes. You can see why he might imagine a place like this here, but I can't find the entrance to it. I'm going to keep looking. Once you pass that last landmark of the Crane Estates, uh, the road literally comes to an end, except for driving around the parking lot at the beach and maintenance roads that seem to just lead nowhere. Uh, that's the end of the road. So if you're following the directions from the story, that's where it takes you. So in order to get another view, 
I'm actually driving around on the other side on a different road called Northgate Road, which may give me an additional perspective. And really all that you'll see is dense woods and marshes, deep marshes, occasional houses, nothing that necessarily looks like it could be a settlement of any kind, not like a distinct town. As you circle the back roads around Castle Hill, the Crane Estate, and Crane Beach, before you return to Gloucester, you will notice one particular feature, which is an obvious large hunk of green land that seems to be hovering out beyond the marsh behind the beach. You can't get to this place in a car. This is an island that is surrounded by marshes, and it's called Chote Island. Now I'm driving by all the seafood places and the, uh, the smell is killing me. It's killing me because I can't actually stop. Now I've actually been on Chote Island. Uh, you can get there a few different ways. And one of the ways you can get there is on Chote Island Day. They will actually run people, uh, tourists over there on a ferry. And what you will find out there is um, there's some interesting things out on Chote Island. There are a number of historic houses on this island, and a movie was actually filmed there. The, uh, the Crucible, which is about the Salem Witch Trials, based on the novel by Arthur Miller, used the scenery here, which is actually right on the money in terms of its uh, historic appearance. 100 years ago, this entire area was part of the Crane Estate, and the cranes are actually buried on a hill at the top of the island. The entire area now is part of the Crane Wildlife Refuge, which is managed by the Trustees of Reservation, who also manages the beach and the Crane Castle itself. So as we follow Lovecraft's directions to Innsmouth, we find ourselves on an inaccessible island other than by kayak or ferry that is a wildlife refuge, has hiking trails, and is a historic looking place that's used to film movies. So is this where we stop? Is this the end of it? Was it all in his imagination? Because right now it doesn't look like there's anything here. But guess what? At one point, there was something here, and there was an actual road that led to the island. At one point, there was a settlement here. Before it was called Chode Island, it was called Hog Island, and there were half a dozen family farms on this island. There are at least seven islands, seven major islands, in this marshy area, including Chebacco Island nearby, which also had at one point family farms and a larger settlement. So in short, our uh, exploration of an imaginary town in a horror novel by Lovecraft has led us to an abandoned and forgotten settlement in Massachusetts. 
So the road to Choate Island no longer goes all the way there. The causeway that used to go to the island itself uh, is long gone. But you can go down this old road, and of course this road was in place long before there were cars, so I have to park and walk down. And this is, you know, in theory, this is where Lovecraft's character, this is where the bus would have gone to the town. So we're just going to walk to the end of it and um, wrap up this show. It's certainly beautiful scenery out here. I mean, it's definitely, I would recommend going for a hike in this area and checking out the entire Crane Estate and the entire uh, wildlife preserve. There's really tall grass along this road and as I'm going along, the grass is really kind of starting to overtake the road and it's really thick. Um, I gotta push some of these giant blades of grass to the side. The road itself is sort of being lost and it's uh, no longer clear that this was a road. You wouldn't be able to tell unless you were standing on it that there used to be a road here. And uh, this is some really intense sort of marsh area. And these giant blades of grass go right over my head. I mean, you can definitely uh, hear not so far away the rush of the ocean. And you have to remember that these are big uh, tidal areas. And even though you think you're on solid ground at any given point, uh, this marshy land with all these crisscrossing creeks, you could get overrun by water pretty easily. This is sort of strange. I thought that I got here a little after one in the afternoon. Um, I must have lost track of time because the sun seems to be setting. Um, looking at my phone and my phone is not giving me the right time. Uh, I am not sure why. So I guess I am going to have to call it short here and not go all the way to the end of the road um, because there is something wrong with my phone and I probably lost track of time and I don't want to be stuck out here in the dark. You know, if you've ever been through uh, Massachusetts in the summer, you will notice that there are like these I call them bush monsters. It's like a, it's like a tree that's become completely overgrown with ivy and it kind of looks like a, a lurching monster. Uh, you'll see these sometimes even along the side of the highway. And as I'm going back to the car, there's like one of these really, really big ones, a really nasty one. And the wind is uh, really pushing on it and rushing its leaves. And it looks like, is it going to fall over in the middle of the path? It's very strange. The wind's not blowing that much, but it is moving quite a bit. Um, this is kind of strange. Uh, it looks like it's the tree is sliding. Uh, maybe there's water coming up and it's pushing it along. Okay, this isn't a tree. Uh, this is... Oh boy. It looks like it has kind of like uh, 
slimy sort of branches and they're kind of reaching out at me towards the across the path uh, I have to be able to get through there to the car but these big branches are in my way really slimy I'm gonna try and push them out of the way wait a second my hand is stuck to this branch it looks like ugh. Looks like there's an eyeball on this branch. Wait, there's more than one eyeball on this branch. This isn't a tree. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta figure out a way to get out of here. Um, this thing is not a tree, and it's moving. Um, I think that I actually might be coming face to face with an actual sugar. I can't believe it. I am going to try and take a picture with my phone of the sugar. Uh, as it kind of chases me back along the road. If you like the show for some reason, there are lots of ways you can join the fun or get a hold of us. You can message Lost Mass through the podcast apps on Anchor. There's a voice option. Or you can go to lostmassachusetts.com and subscribe to our blog or use the various methods there to contact us. If you go to lostmassachusetts.com, you can also sign up to get a postcard from a lost place and find out where to send us a lost postcard too. Also go to Lost Massachusetts at uh, Instagram for photos and other details. We will do our best to respond to comments uh, directly uh, as well as within the show. You might hear um, your own comment. That's fun. <laughs>